We've never vaccinated people and boosted them multiple times a year. So we do not know how the immune system is going to react to so much boosting because the vaccine developers did not study it. Today I sit down with Brownstone Institute's Dr. Paul Alexander, an expert in evidence-based medicine, research methodology, and clinical epidemiology. He served in the Trump administration as a COVID policy advisor. In this two-part episode, he breaks down the extensive data on natural immunity, the failures of lockdown policies, and the risks associated with vaccinating children with the COVID vaccines. If you say these vaccines are safe for my children, remove the liability protection. And the enormous costs doctors and scientists may face for going against the grain. We really go through hell. We suffer our names and our careers. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellek. Before we start, I wanted to take a moment to tell you about our sponsor, American Hartford Gold. As you may have heard, American Thought Leaders was demonetized by YouTube, and after many months, their rather opaque appeals process has really led nowhere. Yet there are still companies like American Hartford Gold that value freedom of speech and honest discourse, and are sponsoring shows like ours. With inflation on the rise, investing in gold is another option to diversify your assets. American Hartford Gold is a patriotic, family-owned company that not only sells precious metals right to your front door, they can help you deposit gold into a retirement account, like an IRA or a 401k. They've got an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, and right now they have a promotion where they will give you up to $1,500 of free silver on your first order. You can just call 855-862-3377. That's 855-862-3377. Or you can text AMERICAN to 65532. Thank you, American Hartford Gold, for sponsoring American Thought Leaders. Dr. Paul Alexander, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you very much, sir, and what an honor and a privilege to be here. Oh, that's very kind, very kind of you to say, and it's great to be with a fellow Canadian once in a while. Um, so... I've been looking at your one of your recent uh, pieces that you've authored for the Brownstone Institute, where you're a scholar, um, which looks at I think you've now you're up to 124 different papers in the literature review of, of natural immunity. Of the, yes. Why don't you tell me what you know about natural immunity? Because clearly you've read just about everything there is to to know about COVID natural immunity. Thank you, and thank you for this opportunity. I think. The challenge is that um, when uh, we first um, started to move towards the vaccine, um, there was a lot of uh, publications and discussion by high-level people in the United States government, Canadian government and other governments that um, the population has to go towards the vaccine and that um, the natural immunity, natural exposure immunity was not uh, optimal or would not give them um, protection against uh, SARS-CoV-2 or uh, the disease. And um, I'm not an immunologist or virologist by training. My training is from McMaster University under Gordon Guyatt was um, in evidence-based medicine, but I knew enough from my biology and my uh, academics that um, a vaccine cannot confer the broad, robust, sterilizing immunity that natural exposure immunity can because um, natural immunity looks at the pathogen, and in this case, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, entirely. So when your immune response takes a look at the virus, the SARS virus, it looks at the entire outer surface of the virus, all of the bumps, 
all of the nooks, crannies, all the proteins, all attachments. It looks at the viral envelope, the membrane protein, the inside the nucleocapsid. It looks at the spike protein. The vaccines, based on how they, the COVID vaccines, how they were developed, uh, focused only on the spike antigen, the spike which sits on the ball of the virus, that spicule that you see sticking out. And um, there are just a few epitopes, which are binding regions, that your antibodies could bind to. It's a much different situation. So the, so the vaccine is actually has, out of the gate, a suboptimal look at the virus. And that is why, with the mutations, the mutations, the hot spot on the virus is the spike where the mutations are taking place, the receptor binding domain. So when that spike mutates, that is why it's a problem because the vaccine was built on the initial Wuhan strain in February, March, April 2020. And if the mutations are taking place on the spike, like today, the predominant is the Delta variant. The immunity conferred by the vaccine is missing the Delta. It can't cope with the Delta, and that is why we are having breakthrough infections. So my area of expertise is in evidence-based medicine. So, you know, I was taught that um, we look at the body of evidence. That's the entire landscape. Each study may not be perfect, and some would be higher quality, some would be lower quality, but when you engender the, the, the entire body of evidence, you could pretty much get a good glean of the situation and to, and to be more, uh, ha make more trustworthy statements about your findings. And as I began to look, um, since we began, evidence began to be accumulated from about February 2020, there have been quite a lot of studies, quite a lot of good publishers and researchers who have put out papers showing particularly that uh, there's a strong natural immune uh, response to the virus. And that particularly most recently, what we are seeing is that um, when you look at um, the natural immune uh, response versus the, the vaccine response, you are seeing that persons who are vaccinated are beginning to become highly infected uh, much more readily than the persons who are COVID recovered already. So it demonstrated that the persons who were naturally exposed and who developed an immune response already had some protection that the vaccine was not, there was breakthrough. And as I began to look at the evidence, I began to accumulate them in a very um, systematic manner and read the studies. And then I decided, you know what, let me collate it together in one publication so that I could put it out there and tell the research community, um, look, here's the evidence. Now you judge for yourself. This is the body of evidence. And initially it was about 70 papers. But as time went on, I, I read more. And scientists from across the world began to reach out to me and share with me um, and say, look, you should also include this. Take a read. What do you think? And once I found it gave an explanation and it gave insight that, look, this is a natural immune response here. This could be beneficial. And it's very important because in one particular um, inclusion in that list, there was a study done in 2008-2010 where researchers looked at persons who were infected during the Spanish flu. They were five or six years old and um, young kids. But what they found was these people in 2008-2010 who were still alive, almost 90 years old, 
So almost 100 years later, they found in their blood that there was still an immune response to this Spanish flu virus. Uh, there was a T-cell immunity, etc. It was fascinating. In fact, it was eye-opening to the research community. It looks like you can develop a natural immune response that would last you for the rest of your life. So I decided to put it together and present it. And um, it, has, it has, using the term, gone viral. I've gotten calls from senators, United States government, from Congress people who are using it as part of legislative bills. And um, the reality is, at the core, it's just the available evidence today to show that natural immunity is a real thing and stacked up against the vaccine, it confers you, some people want to say, well, at least equal, but the totality of the evidence suggests superior immunity than the vaccine. That's very interesting. You know, you're basically saying that looking at the totality of evidence available is more useful than looking at a particular study that might tell you what you want to hear or, or, or confirm something that's a common wisdom. Now, how are you, uh, the statement that you say it's superior to vaccine, that, that's not from a totality of the studies, that's from some, a few of the studies. Why are you more conditional on that point? In the sense of, um, you mean, how do I arrive at that conclusion? Yes, yes. Well, I mean, <clears throat> you look at a um, uh, study out of Cleveland by Shastra et al. And uh, they looked at um, about 55,000 um, healthcare workers and they followed up those who were not vaccinated, that they recovered from the virus. And they followed them up and found that in no instance was there any repeat infection. Uh, they found instances where those who were vaccinated were. There was this study, seminal study, that we thought in the scientific community would put an end to the debate on <clears throat> whether the vaccine immunity is better than natural immunity, and particularly the issue around the uh, um, vaccine mandates. Um, because you know there's this big push to um, separate people from the workforce in the United States and in other countries, United, in Canada, etc., who are not vaccinated. And, um, you know, our argument is very simple. Like, how could you take a nurse who has been dealing with patients for the last near yeah, two years, been exposed, and she's likely, or he's likely, already immune? They probably got infected, built an immune response, and um, you are now saying that if they made that personal decision for their, their own bodily integrity, and they know the science, and, and, and they are best able to decide that they don't want the vaccine for whatever reasons, and they know they're already COVID recovered, you are saying that they can't continue to work or have their career when they're actually more safer <clears throat> than the vaccinated nurse. And I'll tell you why. I'll draw on two studies quickly for you. There was a seminal one I started to talk about by Gazette et al. out of Israel, where they looked at double vaccinated persons, uh, Israelis, those who were COVID recovered, and a third group of COVID recovered with one vaccine, one shot. And they found, <clears throat> just at a 30,000 foot level, they found that the double vaccinated persons were about 13 times more at risk of becoming infected with Delta they found that they were about 27 times more at risk of um, developing symptomatic COVID and about eight to nine times more risk of uh, becoming hospitalized. There was, so that study actually um, is being almost swept under the rug and the scientific community 
like the CDC, etc., pretends it does not exist. But that is a study that actually we felt would settle down everyone, make them understand that at least COVID-recovered persons should be recognized, their immunity should be recognized, because the vaccine, the vaccinated person is, is, is demonstrating the ability to become infected at, at, at higher levels. And why I say that is this. There was this study out of Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam, by Chow et al. And um, what they found was they looked at 69, I think 69 or 70 healthcare workers, nurses who were in a hospital, a, a, a medical setting, and there was a Delta outbreak. And uh, what was interesting, uh, informative, was that they were all double vaccinated. But what we also found when we look at the research is that um, these nurses went on to spread the virus to each other. And they did the genetic testing to verify this, that it, the variant that was spread within each in that facility came from them. What we found was that the nurses spread to each other, accumulated massive viral load in their oral nasal passages. But importantly, the authors concluded there was a 251-fold higher load in the, these nurses than when they looked at similar cohort from March 2020 in the Alpha strain, unvaccinated. So it raised a lot of questions. It, it, it demonstrated, and I believe post that publication in The Lancet, the CDC's director came on to the, there was a breaking news live broadcast from Dr. Walensky. <clears throat> that study plus, there was an outbreak in Barnes-Stable, Massachusetts, where I think it was 400 to 500 persons in this uh, uh, gathering. And uh, the finding was that 75, 74, 75% of them uh, became infected with Delta, but they were all double vaccinated. That was the issue. And the CDC came out right away to tell the public that double vaccinated people should go back to wearing masks. So it is really confusing for the public because the public is following along the guidance, but the guidance at times is, is making no sense because you told me I need a shot. Then you said, no, 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 you need two shots. Then you told me after that, that I need to put back on the mask and I still need to social distance and um, I needed to go into facilities. Now you're telling me I need a third shot in Israel. They're going gangbusters with a third booster. And even the data is showing that the Delta is breaking through the third. Now Israel is reporting the news, is prepping the population for a fourth. So, and in the United States and Canada, they're talking about boosters also. So it means, in layman terms, if, if I could say it, the vaccine has failed against Delta. That's it. It's not working. And it makes sense because the spike, the, the, the immune response is towards it's not the initial spike, and that's what the public is not being informed. So what we are setting people up with, and potentially our children, is you're telling me, because I've seen the studies, that um, Pfizer is an example. We have studies that have shown that the antibody levels drop 40% a month. What does that mean in layman terms? That means that after three months, you have none. So that's why they're saying from four to five months, we want you to get this booster. Well, we've never been in a situation globally 
When I got my shots, or you as children, or your parents or whomever, it was shots for life. You get your one shot or your initial booster right there as a child. We don't be boostering people. So right now you've asked the world to take three shots in eight months. Israel is going to a fourth. We've never done this. We do not know how the immune system is going to react to so much boosting. Why? Because the vaccine developers did not study it. And that's the key. We would not be asking these questions or be so concerned if Pfizer and Moderna and whomever had done the proper follow-up, the duration of a vaccine takes 10 to 12 to 15 years, but you brought a vaccine to us in three to four months. I would be reckless and dangerous, as some of these public health officials are, to tell the public that it's safe. They don't know. They don't know it's safe. How could they know? They've not followed it up properly. And then there's this talk that we are the experiment and they're going to collect this data now during the vaccination period. From my point of view, it, this has been done wrong. And, and I mean, more importantly, back to your initial question of natural immunity. If there are so many questions, why have you not recognized natural immunity? Why didn't you not start the vaccine rollout where you test people? serologically or T-cell immunity testing to, to, to decide whether they have some immunity in the first place. And then if you do, you know, you make that decision that you're not a candidate for the vaccine. So why, why has this been a carte blanche in total across the board vaccination of the entire world when the vaccine is now having so many questions? And if people were COVID recovered, why have you not recognized that? I have a colleague, Dr. Stephen Pelek, in Canada, and his group are doing research on vaccines. Um, I can't recall the name of his company, but I can tell you he has a publication. It's actually in my Brownstone publication, where they looked at um, the population in Vancouver, British Columbia, and they did a sample of the population, and they found that there was an immune response of, at about 90% in the population. This is even before the vaccine rollout. This was last year. Why has the response not looked at people's existing immunity? We know that the SARS-CoV-2 virus is a coronavirus. We know that it's similar to prior common cold coronaviruses. We know this, there are coronaviruses also. We know that <clears throat> SARS-1, persons who recovered from SARS-1 in 2003, and there's cross-protection, cross-reactivity. We have those studies published in Nature and high-level journals. There are people who just will not be infected with COVID. They just can't be. And that's just the way it is. There are people who come already with cross-protection, cross-immunity. They will never be infected with COVID, SARS-CoV-2. But, but, but the CDC and the end, they just don't recognize It's not even that they discount it. They refuse to recognize it. And I think it, it, it has us now in a quandary because you are taking back to that nurse, you are taking someone who's likely immune and she is probably the safest person to her patients. And I think this is the thing that the public needs to understand. <clears throat> just before the vaccine came out from around fall of 2020 and just the beginning before the first shot, the, the news media, uh, these people went around telling everyone, oh, look, you know, 
Um, we, we have this study here that shows that your, your antibodies are waning because you are naturally, you got exposed, you recovered from the thing. But now we checked your blood a few months after and we see that your antibodies have waned. So you're losing immunity. So all of you people out there who are saying natural immunity is long lasting, look, we are showing you the antibodies are waning. So you're losing immunity. But they knew. This basic immunology, they knew that as part of the immune response, antibodies is just one part. But the important part is the cellular immunity as part of that, the cellular component of your immune response. And we are talking about B cells and T cells. And the B cells are the ones that produce the antibodies in future exposure. And your T cell immunity, the T cells are natural killer cells. We have natural killer cells, CD8+. Plus that will clear out a virus on its own. It needs nothing else to help it. But we know, we know that it is expected that your antibody levels will wane across time and it will plateau, but it's not going away. It, it becomes quiescent and dormant. You are not losing your immunity when you are naturally exposed. Your antibody levels must wane, but, when you, but, there's, but there's immunological memory. And when you get re-exposed again, those antibodies will be churned out again by the B cells. We have long-lived bone marrow plasma cells that they differentiate. And they actually, we have studies that show that they actually become better with time. They adjust. They become much more reactive, even to the variants. So we know that your cellular immunity is what is long-lasting. Mm -hmm. The CDC on its own website, if you check, it says, if you had chicken pox, you don't need a vaccine. It also says if you had measles, mumps, or rubella, you don't need to get a vaccine because they know natural immunity is set. You do not take Susie for a shot after she's recovered from measles because she has bulletproof immunity for the rest of her life. I argue, and I know many doctors and scientists know this, they are just constrained from talking because of a targeting and loss of career, etc., and being smeared in the media and cancelled. And a very, very cogent argument could be made now that um, there's the potential that the vaccinated person is spreading, transmitting virus to the vulnerable unvaccinated. And again, we need the studies to be done, but the right parties like the NIH and CZ will not do it. We are looking at the data and trying to make the data tell a story. The story is there. You know, we have people in the past, like uh, scientists, who study the issue of... Um, it's a very interesting, con not concept, they actually study this and publish it in PLOS in 2015. Uh, the lead author was Reed. And uh, what they did was, it was very fascinating, and, and our argument today is we could potentially potentially we, be, we could be looking at the same situation here. And that is a virologist's greatest nightmare, which is that the vaccine itself, because it's a suboptimal leaky vaccine, these vaccines are leaky. A leaky vaccine is a, is a vaccine that does not prevent infection. It does not prevent transmission. And uh, all it does pretty much is moderate or tamp down the symptoms. So what is happening is the vaccinated person is vaccinated and the vaccine is doing what it should do, which is it reduces your symptoms, mild COVID, etc. 
but it does not prevent you from transmitting it or becoming infected, etc., or even severe. So that vaccinated person is potentially becoming an asymptomatic super spreader. And this study by Reed et al. in 2015 surrounded chickens. And I don't know if you've ever read it. Okay, so let me just, uh, could I be brief? Yeah. In, in, in a quick paragraph. What they did was people who farms, who chicken, people who raise chickens for commercial purposes. Chickens have a disease, uh, Marek's disease virus that impacts them. And um, uh, of course, it causes, causes loss to, to those who raise massive amounts of chickens for commercial purposes. Researchers brought a vaccine to market for chicken growers. And uh, the vaccine uh, did not stop transmission, they found out. It did not stop infection. All it did was reduce the symptoms to the chickens, which is exactly what COVID vaccine does today. And what did they find? Well, Reed et al. published uh, um, a paper on this Marek's disease, and they showed that when they modeled it out and they did some experiments, I think the key one to COVID today, which is what I've, I'm, I've just written something and submitted it with some other researchers, is that um, they showed that the vaccinated chickens spread the virus to the unvaccinated chickens. They harbored massive amounts of load, the vaccinated chickens, and particularly they spread hotter strains. So they drove the development, the vaccination apparently drove the development of more lethal strains to the unvaccinated sentinel chickens. So you have people like Gert van den Bosch, Mike Eden, um, Robert Malone, etc. They are laying out explanations as to the challenges that could happen with this vaccine based on what we're seeing today. It appears that what has happened in those chickens is actually happening today because we do have a leaky vaccine. No one is arguing that, not even the CDC. The vaccine is imperfect. It does not stop you from becoming infected or transmitting it. The vaccine developers did not do the studies for the proper duration. So they cannot tell you today, no one can, no CDC official, no NIH, no vaccine developer, that these vaccines are safe and effective. They cannot. And definitely they cannot say it's safe because we do not have the data, the long-term data. We do not know. And we also have two cases of myocarditis, etc. Guillain-Barre, happening in people who've taken, young persons who've taken uh, blood clots, CVST, young people who've taken these vaccines. So the vaccines is having an adverse effect. The CDC's own VAERS database, Vaccine Adverse Reporting System, right now lists close to 20,000 deaths in the United States. Just United States. And these deaths, if you look at the, the curve, the death curve, it happens one to two days post-vaccine, about 50% of them, about 80% would have accumulated by about the seventh day post-vaccine. And uh, researchers have concluded that about 85% of the deaths are linked directly to the vaccine. And you know, um, you apply Bradford and Hill's uh, causality model to that, you could pretty much walk away realizing that, 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 that the vaccine is the cause. Could we have a temporal relationship? We have a biological plausibility because the vaccine is introducing into you 
um, the genetic material to drive your body to produce a spike protein. It is the spike protein on the ball of the virus that is the dangerous part of this virus from the disease itself, natural infection. So I would say it this way. I want a, a medication or the vaccine to work. But if it is not, and if it is potentially harmful and is actually causing harm, we have to examine this. We can't just, it's, it can't be like what we did with the lockdowns, as an example. We reacted to the devastation from the lockdowns by locking down harder and longer. We put people into more distress and duress. So we don't, when we, information is accumulating to say that there's a problem here, we don't react by doing more of it. I, I, that makes no sense to me. And that's the issue. So, you know, speaking of kind of doubling down on questionable policy, yes. you know, we're having these new, I, I suppose, seasonal spikes in, you know, coronavirus uh, infections and so forth. And there's even some discussion, especially in some European countries, of going back to lockdowns. Yes. And, you know, clearly this isn't something you'd be a supporter of. What are your thoughts here? Like I saw on the news, like Austria, they were thinking now about shifting back into lockdown. There was another country I, said, I saw, they threatened their population, that the unvaccinated, if you do not get vaccinated, we're going to lock you down. Well, I think that is outrageous because, first of all, we looked at the entire body of evidence on lockdowns. We probably put together about 115 studies and, and publications that showed the lockdowns, the effect of the, the, first of all, the lockdowns just did not work. We can't find no location in this world from February 2020 to today still where you can show that the lockdowns had a beneficial effect in reducing transmission or death even. We can't find, in fact, we have studies that show us that the lockdowns drove those restrictive policies with school closures, drove uh, tremendous pain in fact, drove transmission and death. So the question is... Let, 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 let me stop you here. I know you saw, just wait. So you're telling me through 150... 15. 115 examples that yes. you looked at, you can't find a single example where lockdowns were actually helpful in stopping the spread and doing what they were supposed to do. No, absolutely none. In fact, the general tenant is that um, in most locations where lockdowns were even done, those, if you look at the epidemic curves, the, the, the infections were coming down without the lockdowns. The lockdowns were actually implemented after the infections had come down. So that's a very, it's an eye-opening thing. It's like the mass mandates. We've published also, we looked at mass mandates and we cannot find one country. We looked at every country and every state or county in the United States, as an example, internally, where mask mandates were implemented. And we cannot find one example where a mask mandate stopped the transmission, reduced it, or stopped that. In fact, when you look at all of the curves, all of them showed that infections went up after the implementation of the mask mandate. So, in other words, all of these policies between the lockdowns, the school closures, the mask, the mask mandates, they were, I, I don't want to use the word illogical, but they were very unscientific and unsound because they did not result in what it was intended to accomplish. And now, if we are having a situation with Delta 
And we know that Delta has turned out to be the mildest of all of the variants in terms of lethality, etc. We know it's infectious. Nobody has argued that. But it's behaving, the virus is behaving like how a virus normally behaves, Mueller's ratchet. As time goes on, it mutates, the virus mutates downwards. It's becoming more infectious, contagious, because it is winding down. And you are putting a lot of pressure on it. It has to find a way to evade you. Because evade the, 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 the steps you are taking on it because it wants to find a way to infect you, use your cellular metabolic machinery to transmit itself. A virus does just one thing, replicate, with, via you, via me. So it will find every avenue it could find to promote that. And the issue is this, the more you lock a society down, you achieve a few things. One, there's nothing much really to emerge from after if you really impose a strict lockdown, like what we're seeing in places like Australia. You're destroying your society. But two, you are preventing the population from inching closer, closer to population level herd immunity because the, the people cannot be exposed. They cannot become immune. So you're, you're putting yourself in a dangerous situation whenever you reopen. Every time you reopen, there will be a spike in infection, and then you're going to lock down again. You are thinking that you're going to vaccinate yourself out of this. And that is a huge problem, because if you brought me a sterilizing vaccine that was sterilizing the virus, proper, full, neutralizing antibodies, and we knew that if we vaccinated the population fully, we would stop this virus in its tracks. But you brought a suboptimal vaccine. So those countries that were waiting on the vaccine, they are now faced with a leaky vaccine. So they've locked their societies down. This is what has happened, waiting. They prevented their populations like Australia from getting to herd immunity, from, from, from generating a lot of natural immunity within the population, waiting for the vaccine. Now the vaccine has come, but the vaccine is, not, is imperfect. In fact, the vaccine is leaky. It's allowing those who get vaccinated to become infected again and potentially get ill and even die. My philosophy from day one was in line. I worked with um, uh, Dr. Scott Atlas. Um, I, I followed what the, the, the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, Gupta, Bhattacharya, Kuldoff, brilliant individuals. I think the top ep epidemiologists in the world. I think Scott Atlas on this issue was probably the most prescient, informed individual because he brought the balance, and I learned a lot from him when my short stint in the administration. His approach was simple, and, I, and, I, and I've endorsed it, and I espouse it, and I espouse it today, and I turn to countries that want to lock down again. Why don't you strongly, properly protect the vulnerable in your society? First, first, nothing else must work, or you do nothing else unless you do that. If that's the only thing you do, you'll be successful. But do it properly. We have failed in the West, in the United States and in Canada. For example, about 80% of the persons who died in Canada were in nursing homes. We failed. We failed to protect the vulnerable. We did it backside, wrong-sided. We locked down the healthy and the well in the society the ones who were more able to cope with it and handle 
the virus and we failed at the same time to protect the vulnerable. And that is what went wrong. So I'm saying that try and look at the Great Barrington Declaration. Look at that focused age restratified approach. It makes a lot of sense. And particularly, we knew out of the gate that COVID was amenable to restratification. And we knew also that early treatment worked. We have early treatment. So if you have elderly in a, in a nursing home and you're strongly protecting them and you're allowing the rest of society, the well, to live unfettered lives, lives, because they are healthy, their immune systems are strong, they could deal with the virus, they could develop natural immunity, get towards population immunity. If the elderly is ever infected, you have early treatment that they can get and be implemented, and they will clear the virus, they will recover, and now they too will be naturally immune. The problem is we chose to tie the hands of physicians and across the world, particularly in places like Canada and United States, prevented them from prescribing, prevented them from applying early treatment. And many, many of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people died needlessly because there's good research that shows that early outpatient treatment, ambulatory treatment, given in that first two-week window, properly dosed, properly timed, can reduce the risk of hospitalization and death by about 85 to 90%. That's the key. You want to keep the person, the elderly high-risk person in their home. You don't want them going to the hospital. From the time you touch the emergency room door, your 20-day mortality risk skyrockets about 38%. So you want to keep them from getting there. And you can do that with early treatment. So I'm saying, why don't you strongly for the first time protect your high-risk people properly, allow the rest of society to breathe and to live normally, let them live, let them free, let them get natural exposure harmlessly. I'm not talking about deliberate infection. We've always meant harmless as part of natural living, particularly children. Children are in the best situation to handle Delta. The best situation, that would be like, they would probably have no symptoms or very mild, like, like, like the common cold even. They would be immune for life. We have seen that natural immunity exposure is one undone. You get infected, you are, you are, we cannot find one case. We've looked at the science, Dr. Carl McCullough with myself, we cannot find one case properly distanced 90 days apart, bona fide infection based on two tests that you could say, well, this person actually, most of the time anyone raises a case, we could go back and look at the PCR testing we could look at the cycle count threshold and say, well, you overcycled the test. We could show you there was problems in interpretation of the testing results. So, so the reality is that low-risk people are in the best situation if you allow them to live naturally, like how we do normally, and uh, deal with it with their immune systems. They have very strong, naturally innate immune systems too. Then locking them down, you're suffering them, you're killing your economy. The virus isn't going nowhere. It's going to mutate more. It's going to become more infectious and wait for you. So you will be in a never-ending cycle of lockdowns reopen, lockdown reopen. And if you thought that the vaccine was your way out, which is what they did, and I understand that,
But the vaccine is showing us. Look at Israel. Look at UK. Look at Iceland. Look at Seychelles. Look at Gibraltar. Look at the United States. The vaccine is showing us that the double vaccinated are becoming reinfected. So what are you going to do then? You're going you're gonna to enter a booster program every four to five months. Where, where's the evidence that that is going to work? We might end up killing a bunch of people. We might end up, I mean, I, 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 it's not that I want to be inflammatory. I'm saying it how I'm thinking about it. We've never vaccinated people and boosted them multiple times a year. And we don't know what is going to happen because the vaccine developers didn't study it. Had they studied this for 10, 15 years as they should have and brought us the safety data and said, look, we looked at this for 15 years and, you know, we gave boosters every six months because the vaccine was failing. But once you boost, everybody's fine. They'll just get a boost and they go on with life. As ridiculous as that is, because you don't want that. But let's say you did that. But you don't even have that data to give me to look at. Yet, we are seeing deaths accumulate in the United States. We have the huge vigilance surveillance system that shows 30,000 deaths due to the vaccine and about 2 million adverse events. So it is real. There are serious consequences. There are serious consequences to taking a simple drug. When you take a medication normally that you just pop at home sometimes, you need to understand there's risk. There's risk with any medication, with any medical device or vaccine, just, just the device itself. So another thing I wanted to cover with you before we move on is uh, you basically you said that every study that you've looked at uh, that t related to lockdowns spoke to their ineffectiveness, right? If, if I understood that correctly. Yes. Um, well, the sort of the elephant in the room is the numbers coming out of China. You know, ostensibly, that is the case that got people interested in lockdowns in the first place, right? So few deaths according to their official statistics. I would ask, well, where's the data? What, according to who? Based on what? Where is the publication for us to examine it? That's a very important thing. We just have something out in the press. That is not a scientific publication. That has not gone through any peer review. It has gotten through no scientific scrutiny. So we can't put any credible, uh, uh, um, any credit to it. Um, again, this is not about wanting things to fail. This is always about wanting things to succeed. And if we could find steps and, and policies that could help. But look at the situation today. We've had all of these nations that have locked down and we've had, we now have a lot of literature that has accumulated to show us that the lockdowns provided no benefit. In fact, just horrible, horrifying stories to the populations and societies that were inflicted by it. I mean, there's a particular study in, um, in Toronto Ontario, Canada, where they, I'll give you a specific example, and, and you know, media doesn't pay attention to it, but I dug deep down. Um, they separated the 30 highest um, per capita affluent communities in Toronto based on postal codes, so high median incomes, versus the 30 lowest. And what we found was because of the lockdown, the risk of transmission, etc., shifted dramatically to them. This is an example where the lockdowns failed. You actually shift the burden from the laptop cafe latte 
affluent class to the poor persons because the poor persons are the ones who have to do the front-facing jobs. They could not shield, they could not stay home and protect themselves like the more affluent persons who could have worked remotely, who could have easily pivoted because most of them in supervisory management positions pivoted to this remote situation. They could have all gotten remote learning for their children. They could have afforded laptops, webcams, um, pod schooling, all sorts of different things. They could have gotten their children extra tutors. The poor persons in society suffered from the lockdowns dramatically. They have poor children in America, millions, who have no breakfast. They eat no dinner. And the only meal they get is in that school environment. When you lock down your society and you close schools, you suffered poor children. They suffered poor, poor children. Children normally get their ears tested, their eyes tested for the first time only in a school setting. Many poor parents who were etching out a living silently, very respectably, you know, respectfully to themselves, they were fleshed out into the open by the lockdowns and the school closures. Because Johnny and Susie had a very rudimentary little computer at home, did not have a laptop with a sophisticated webcam, and had no facilities to accommodate homeschooling with all of the lockdowns. All of a sudden, their parents, who were holding down low-paying jobs, front-facing, mother had to come home because you're locking down. Now they're going to remote. Father has just been laid off because the businesses are closed because you locked down. And now they have Johnny and Susie have no laptop or camera. They have to now go to the school and tell the school or go to the system and say, we don't have the infrastructure for Johnny. Now Johnny was making his way privately. No one knew Johnny's business. And Johnny might have gone on to become a doctor or a lawyer and somebody very prominent, you know? And people could be very humble and you're very private and you don't want society to know my situation as I struggle through my life because I will make something of myself. Now you have Johnny have to cope with a system now knows his financial situation and often other children too. And children, not deliberately, but they could also be mean to each other. And, and it, children, Children have suffered psychologically, devastatingly from this. It's not just a money thing. It is an emotional trauma that some estimates are that we probably will take us 10 to 20 years for our children to recover psychologically and even economically from what we've done. There's no good data out there to show that any of these policies were successful. And if they're saying that China's policy was successful, we need to see the data. It's not good enough to, to get some news organization to print that. Show us the data, show us what worked. In part two of this exclusive interview, Dr. Paul Alexander shares the incredible story of how he was recruited into the Trump administration as a Canadian and at a time when the US-Canada border was completely shut. It's like a movie, a small island boy, black suburban vehicle, I sat down in it. And the bureaucratic backlash he faced especially after he opposed school closures and advocated for early outpatient treatment. They are going to pick a line that you've written and they're going to create a story around that line. They take your life and they try to burn you down. And he breaks down why he believes mandating COVID vaccines for children is unethical, unscientific and dangerous.
These people have been absolved from liability. If you say these vaccines are safe for my children, remove the liability protection.